I made a Twitter post about how I used to type in all lowercase because in the 90s, if you capitalize anything, you were a cop. <laughs> yeah, I think I also picked up on that back in the day. I, I certainly, in my early days on, I guess, ICQ and IRC, those were my... Yeah, me too. Platforms. How did we never run into each other? Well, it was a big internet. Also, we might have had... Hand, I don't know. I mean, actually, I, I tended to just go by JP, yeah. which makes me unsearchable uh, <laughs> now, which is for the best, probably. But yeah, I, I, I too picked up on that sort of like like typing in you know, in non all lowercase was kind of seen as like a little, like it's you're, you're typing in Kelsey Grammer's voice or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, Oh, well, aren't you being fancy here? But you still had to like have perfect spelling and grammar and punctuation or people would jump on you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tended to just like try to spell, I, I tried to use perfect spelling and grammar just sort of, I mean, I guess as a point of pride. So maybe internalized the, the jumping on uh, dynamic. Right. But yeah, I mean, honestly, like looking back and looking at situations now where I type in all lowercase, cause I still definitely do uh, depending on weird contextual cues, I guess mm -hmm. it, it is mostly just laziness <laughs> like then and now it's like, I don't know. There, there's sort of like a level of, of informality that all lowercase like in emails, I wouldn't dream of like doing all lowercase unless this was just like an extremely quick off the cuff, someone I'm already familiar with kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, it, I think it kind of encodes a lot of different social cues. Depending on who I'm sending a Slack message to, I may or may not use capitals and periods and stuff. Like if yeah. it's somebody that I don't know from like a different department at work, I'll like That's true. write properly. But then if it's somebody where I'm like, I don't know, in, in informing them of what I did in an MMO yesterday, I'll type in lowercase. Right, right. Is there like some analogous like posture change to if you were talking to them in person? I don't know. Have I ever spoken to someone in person? I can't remember back <laughs> that far yeah. ago anymore. Who knows? Hi, I'm JP. Hi, I'm Laura. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. JP, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I am JP. I guess I've been on Topic Lords a few times now. Uh, I have absolutely nothing to plug, and I don't know. Yeah, I'm just some guy on the internet that knows these two nice folks. Uh, and Laura, would, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I'm Laura. I do have something to plug. I edited a video game that came out recently. It's called A Monster's Expedition and it's very cute. And you should all play it because it's a high quality video game. Cool. Nice. Yeah, I've heard good things. It's very chill and it has some very cute jokes in it. Oh, it's got jokes. Yeah. Are are they are they jokes that happen in the the text? Yes. Okay. I had to edit them, so I I saw them, but also they're combined with art. As as yeah. most video games, a combination of many mediums. Yeah, I was just hoping against hope that they were ludic jokes, as as the kind of the kind of jokes that I like. Well, some say that 
laughter is merely a human response to surprise, correct? And there are definitely some surprising ludic moments in A Monster's Expedition. That's what uh, I like that, to hear. That you might experience as if it was a joke that might make you chortle a little bit and enjoy life. <laughs> I love enjoying life. Yeah, me too. I love chortling. <laughs> it's it's some, one of the better ways to enjoy life. Uh, are we ready for some topics? I love them. Yeah. All right, JP, your first topic is what is the least horny sport? This is so hard. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I did not have any any remotely prepared answer for this or anything. Are we eliminating off the bat? Are we going to eliminate esports? Yeah, esports is pretty horny, actually. Is it? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know so little about it, so I will. Yeah, I, I will listen to the expert. The reason I think esports is horny is because frequently they they play as horny characters, right? It's like ripped ah, characters, right. okay. and then it, the lords. Yeah, and then additionally, uh, <laughs> esports is like the dream of so many young people, right? Wherever young people bring their dreams and aspirations, they bring their young people horniness. So I don't know. All you got to do is go on like a subreddit for major esports, and you'll see you'll see a, a yeah, fair amount okay, of horniness. So- so, what's the eSport played by the oldest people? Curling. But I think curling is also horny. Wait, did you say eSport or, or sport, Jim? I did, but this is a good segue oh, into non-eSports. Yeah. The eSport played by the oldest people. Genuinely don't know. Yeah. I was thinking like, well, so, so um, there are no lords in Rocket League. There's just cars. Car lords. Car, car lords. <laughs> um. But yeah, like if there's a Rocket League eSport league, it's probably played by people in jumpsuits who are very young. I'm going to say like, so I have no idea if this is actually a thing, but, you know, all the like cool, like European train simulator, you know, where you're, you're, you're driving a, a, a passenger train from, from Bonn to Hamburg or whatever. Yeah. If that, if anybody is out there doing that competitively, like trying to get like the perfect run or something and they're posting times, <laughs> there's, it seems, I don't know. I just imagine that that is a very non horny space. I could be wrong, but yeah, that's my, you know, that, that this invented category, that's my guess for the least horny esport. Oh yeah. Like, would you say speed running falls under esports? Sure. Yeah. Okay, then there's definitely people out there speed running train simulators. Right, yeah. Yeah, trying to get the trying to get the train into the station the fastest while not getting fired from being a simulated train operator, yeah. Is that is that a risk in those games? You can be fired? You might just be shot on the spot. I don't I don't know actually. Yeah, like I am I am shamefully ignorant. I need to just age, I need to like age maybe like five more years and then I think I'll be at the point in my life where I'm like train simulators and like trucking simulators and all that. This is my main form of gaming. I'm all about this now. I think, yeah. I think, I think I have a phase coming up, but I gotta, I gotta let it come naturally. Is, is Tiger Woods still golfing? Man, yeah, I think golf is a severely unhorny sport now. So simulated golf would be even less horny. Now that now that Tiger Woods isn't in there, well, I feel like many people now know about like the the political evil that golf courses are, right? And we're now we're now in a period of of people's growing awareness to the 
you know, the, the cultural rot that golf represents, right? So I think the horniest people in society probably hate golf. Okay, sure, yeah. Mm, okay, okay. Enemy of my enemy is my, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. and so I, w- I would go so far as to say that golf could never truly be cool anymore, which means it has a, it has a pretty low horny ceiling, you know? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So simulated golf is, is even less cool, which means it has like a really low ma- max horniness ceiling. Right, so yeah, so golf esports, yeah. I watched a half hour YouTube video on the world record for Wii Sports Golf, the Wii Sports Resort Golf. And yeah, very uncool. Playing golf at a resort is probably even less horny than playing golf somewhere in your municipality. So yeah. Yeah, like at a public course. May- well, maybe. Resorts kind of imply that there's someone in a bikini somewhere though. Yeah, but if you're going to a resort to play golf, it's because you've reached a a point in your life where like you're a you're like a a loser. That's what I think. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd be comfortable declaring simulated golf the least horny sport. Yeah. Yeah, like that uh, like that trackball golf game that you find in bars that I forget the name of. Golden Tee. Yeah. Yeah, I, I worked with like the effects artist on the first Bioshock, uh, who is now at question, you know, has had quite an illustrious career. Uh, I remember interviewing him and being like, so yeah, what have you worked on previously? And he was like, golden tea. And I was like, that's, that's a jump. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, Stephen Alexander. He's a phenomenally talent, phenomenally talented and had worked on golden tea. That's all I know about. That's all I know about it though. I, it's a cool thing to know. Yeah. Yeah. If we could, do you have his phone number? You could call him and ask him like, what was the horniness level of the, among the developers? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know him well enough to just call him on a random Thursday night and be like, "So, so you're saying you have his phone number?" I have an extremely unusual question for <laughs> you that you know, no pressure and all, but we're we're recording right now, so uh, yeah, no, we don't, we do not have that that kind of relationship. Okay, you you did interview this guy, so you hold power over him. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I gave him I gave him the thumbs up, you know, at, at the end of the at the end of the interview day and said, yeah, this guy seems cool. We should hire him. And everybody else at Irrational Games in what, 2006 concurred and and the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like what is the what is the what is the horniness differential between simulated like computer golf and real life miniature golf? Oh, interesting. Which one is is hornier? Miniature golf, it must be hornier because people go on dates to play miniature golf. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah, the only other thing I had on that was just on on the on the, the horniness of real life sports is that all of the all of the sports that were in the original Greek Olympic games are definitely ruled out. Like those were all <laughs> very horny. Even if they just involved throwing a discus or something. You know, it was it was like, you know, oiled up. They were naked. They were throwing the discus while they were naked. Yeah. So that's so you can. Yeah. If we're if we're defining this subtractively, that's a big chunk missing right there. A hot buttery chunk missing. I'm going to Google when was golf invented? Because if it was invented by the ancient Greeks, that just upended our entire view of the world. I, I thought golf came from Scotland. 
I was under that impression also. This might have just been like some Monty Python sketch that I saw, you know, 30 years ago or something, but... Uh, That's what Wikipedia says too. Yeah, like just like shepherds in the Scottish Highlands... In the Middle Ages. Being like, oh, I have this these beautiful rolling green hills and caring for sheep is a relatively low demand activity. So I'm going to use this stick to hit rocks and eventually a sport will coalesce. That's what one guy said one day. But with a Scottish accent. Yes, which I, I'm not going to insult millions of people by doing. I don't even know how a Scottish person would say coalesce. It, it'd probably sound beautiful. I imagine it as a kind of music. Do, do either of you have the phone number of a Scottish person? I, I know a couple Scottish people who I work with pretty closely, but I'm not going to contact them at 9. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 9 p.m., yeah. the devil's hour. Well, you know, the workday ended several hours ago. We're all, we're all beat. I'm I'm recreating here with you folks. But if we were recording during your work day. If if we were recording during my work day and I, I was surreptitiously recording during my work day, I absolutely would call up somebody and ask them how they pronounce coalesce. But I would try to I would it would be complicated because I'll hold you to that. I would be objectifying their accent, you know, I would have to be really careful about it. Mm. Yeah, no, we'd have to be respectful about it. We'd have to say we're doing a pinup calendar of accents. Wait, is that respectful? No. <laughs> it's kind of by definition objectifying. But I am trying to imagine a, an accents calendar right now, and that's fun. We'll get a sensitivity reader to figure out how to ask this person. I think if you're, you know, if you're celebrating a huge range of accents kind of equally, I think that's, you know, that's, that's, that feels a little less problematic because you're just like, look, people all over the world talk in so many different ways, even the same language. If, if you play the same sample of Meg Ryan faking an orgasm after each one, <laughs> then they're all equally, all the accents are equally horny. <laughs> what sample are you referring to? I'm not pop culture fluent enough to. Oh, this is, uh, it was from. I haven't even seen the movie. I think but it's I from think when I know Harry what you're Met talking Sally. About. Yeah. Harry Met Sally. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen that movie. I was, I think I was a little too young to see it. Back in the day. Right. You know, and it wasn't aimed at my, I was in the, I was in the Tim Burton Batman demographic in what was it? 1989 or whenever that came out, not the when Harry met Sally demographic. And I have not, I definitely encountered uh, a program like downloaded at the computer labs at school that would like play randomized snippets of that. And there was a slider for intensity. <laughs> Good Lord. So, so. That was uh, that was something. That was before I saw the movie. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Absolutely. Uh, Laura, your topic is best task tracking software. Uh, and, and there's a whole clause here about what best means. Would you like to just go into that yourself? Yeah. So I think a lot of people admire the UI of different task tracking softwares or they admire like you know, the philosophical ideas that this the software is using to track the task, right? But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in like task ta task tracking softwares that people have used for like a really long time while maintaining a good attitude about the tool they're using, right? Because if you're constantly hopping to the next best software, then maybe none of them are actually that good. So, yeah. is there a, a task tracking software of some kind and any kind it can either be something for managing a large team, something for managing your own stuff that you've used for like a really long time 
in a general state of like, yeah, this is pretty good. This is solving my problems. I've been using Trello for a while and that works pretty well as a solo developer. Um, I also find that using a text file works pretty well as a solo developer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing I forgot to mention, April and I have been using an app called Microsoft To Do, which lets you share to-do lists over the internet. Uh, it's been great for things like grocery lists and errands and that we both have we both have to know about. That's it. That's the whole interruption. Yeah, I'm for for my solo work. I'm about the same. I have a I have I have a Trello for Playski, you know, which is an ongoing just, you know, a tool that people use and, you know, just various feature requests and things I want to do with the program. And it's public and people can, you know, vote on cards or whatever. And then I guess I have a Trello for a couple of personal projects, one of which is is, uh, is my autobio game. But yeah, and then the rest, I just kind of keep a to-do list because it usually, like if my to-do list ever gets over one or, or two screenfuls of information, like the scope of this personal project is exploding in a way that I need to do something about. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's possible that I am an ignorant caveman who is working harder rather than smarter with regards to that. But uh, but yeah, and then the last few day jobs I've had uh, use Jira, you know, which is a big industrial strength kind of thing that like you know hundreds of people can collaborate together and you get tasks and you you know do estimates and you track stuff and you assign them to people and whatever. Right. I, I, so I've used or have tried to use a couple of like big bug tracking software. And like, I think it's something that's, that's necessary if you're on a team of more than a few people. Uh, and my problem with like, is that most of them are like way over-engineered. Like, or, or is, is zero one of the ones where you can just like type in a title and then type assign it to somebody and like that's all you need like you're good to go yeah but in order to get to that point you like need to like have some jira wizard like program jira to let you do that like it's such a complicated tool oh like you have to someone can configure which fields are required i once had to configure some fields in jira and it made me deeply miserable and so then after that i asked someone else to do it for me and it was shocking how much knowledge you needed in order to be even keeled about that experience that doesn't really surprise me i feel like programming tools and like with the exception of just the compilers i think compilers are pretty good uh but I think programming tools t- tend to be like pretty awful. Build build systems are pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Version control systems are pretty bad. Version control is exceptionally bad. Yeah. <laughs> They're frequently overkill, you know, like that's the term I would use to describe it because it's like, because I think every domain has like a certain, an amount of like a certain amount of ambient complexity. Like this is just you know, keeping track of files and different versions of them and letting lots of people collaborate on them, that does have a certain amount of unavoidable complexity. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, when you get sort of 
uh, I forget where the where this term is from, but architecture astro- architecture astronomy, architecture oh, yeah. astronauts, where yeah, yeah, you start thinking in terms of like these grand patterns and stuff. You know, some of which, you know, and I think the idea is to bring some good tools for thought to it and to take a kind of, you know, use some of like if some if someone smart in academia has figured something out somewhere, apply that so that we're not just never improving our tools and just rubbing sticks together and whatever. But the danger is that you end up with, yeah, like, thing, you know, I mean, for me, Git is like it has extraneous complexity that just comes from strange, obtuse things about its design and counterintuitiveness of its core verbs and things like that. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's complicated. Laura, do they make you use Git? Uh, I've had to use Git esque shit in the past. Git esque. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember exactly <laughs> what it was, but I used some of that kind of stuff and it made me sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have also seen I understand. people who complain about Git online get like fucking attacked by. <laughs> there was a there was a real a period like around like 2010 where Git had this amazing stellar reputation to the point where like there were people who did not understand Git who were like I guess Git's amazing I should tell everybody to use Git. Uh, and I think like that it's turned a little bit on there, and now only the people who really have used Git a lot and like it a lot are doing that now, which is good. In 2010, like only it, it would have it would have been pretty new, and I think only Linux kernel developers would have been using it. So you know, if like if a small group of people that has very particular needs and a huge amount of like experience is using something and they're fine with it, that's fine, you know. But then if that bec- if that then somehow through a bunch of weird accidents becomes like the de facto standard for software development. That's, right. that's, that's the bad. Well, it was specifically, I think the, um, the culprit there is GitHub. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which is a legitimately great tool for like building a code portfolio. And if they had built it around any other uh, version control system, that would now be the dominant system. It probably would have been weird that they still called it GitHub though. Yeah, the, the value that they that it seems like they built with that was was more like the collaboration. You know, it was collaboration software, which is another thing that task tracking stuff is about. Yeah, but it was tied to a particular version control system, which is why I don't use it because, yeah, like I, yeah. Anyway, you can actually use uh, SVN to talk to GitHub, or at least you could, like five years ago. When we were still, because that was what I, I, I started uh, Glitterman Grove as a, as a uh, Git repository on GitHub and eventually gave up on the Git part and just started talking to it in SVN and it worked fine. Yeah. 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 I mean, particularly if you're doing game development where you just have like, you know, game assets that, you know, you're not getting a lot of benefit from, you know, versioning and stuff there. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the thing about game development in particular is that it puts you in a lot of contact with people who get value out of Git and people who could never get value out of Git. And sometimes you'll <laughs> yeah. be having a conversation about how much Git sucks in a place where, like, the real nerds can see it, and <laughs> they won't be able to parse <laughs> what what category you're in, right? Like, they don't know whether you are somebody who could get value out of it or you are somebody whose life would be easier if it had never existed, right? You're a daywalker to them. Yeah. And so, you can you can either get the the condescension fire hose blast or you can get the just learn how to use it blast. And neither of them are fun. 
Yeah. I think it's similar to the phenomenon of the internet melding the worlds of teenagers and adults so that there's no difference between them anymore. I think the internet has also melded... Well, the internet has also melded the game creation of people who have, like, high technical knowledge and people who have, like, low or don't need to have any technical knowledge so that you can't really anticipate what which kind of person you're talking to on, like, say, Twitter. Right. Definitely. It, it sounds like this question makes it seem like you do have a lot of opinions about task tracking. Oh, I do, yeah. Uh, fire away. Man, I've, I've used a lot of Jira. It always makes me sad, so it can't be my <laughs> my number one thing. Yeah. Uh, I used Airtable for a really long time on my most recent project. I used it uh, not to track tasks, but to track my team's objectives. Um, unfortunately, the corporate Airtable license is like out of this world, so I wasn't able to use it for anyone but myself, and I had to use it like my secret notes, you know? Uh, and I would tell other people that I was working with uh, what was going on there, and I think sometimes I could also share a view of it with them, but it was just such an expensive license that I wasn't able to to give it to them. Uh, now I'm trying to use like this Google Lab, well, it's not called Google Labs anymore, but this like Google knockoff of Airtable called Google Tables, which is just a knockoff of the what if you used Airtable for Kanban kind of a thing. Airtable is sort of like a Google Sheets competitor, but you can also just use it as like a as a task tracker or as a like a tr- tracker for like stuff that you intend to publish, you know, or stuff like that. Except Airtable also wants to compete directly with like the Sheets part of Google Sheets, right? And Google Table, since they already have Google Sheets, is just the functionality from Airtable that you could use to create your task list, basically. Right. Um, so what it does is it creates like a spreadsheet view where you can treat each row in the spreadsheet like a record in a database, kind of. And then uh, it has a Kanban view where you can drag them from column to column. And the columns are like different values in one of the columns on your spreadsheet. So you can you can modify those values by dragging the, the tile around. Uh, and I really like that because I do not like being locked to either the task list or the Kanban board version. And I also like being able to just add or delete fields as I see fit. You know, I don't like having to become a, a wizard to add or remove them in Jira or to change permissions on them. Uh, so I'm controlling my day-to-day tasks using this Google table thing, which just appeared. Uh, so it doesn't go down for me using it for a long time, but it, I do like it in that it is an Airtable that that my coworkers could access, you know, because it's in the it's in the Google App Suite, so that's pretty cool. Is it and it's relatively new? Yeah, it's not the greatest yet. It's missing a lot of uh, just some nice UI stuff that Google normally ships its uh, its sites with. Yeah, it being a Google product, it's so it's either going to have a decent little life before getting Google shut down, yeah, <laughs> weirdly euthanizes it, or it will die very soon. But maybe it's already past that window. So everything gets euthanized eventually. Oh, totally. Yeah. In what sense is table being used in Airtable and whatever? Is it just a table in the sense that a spreadsheet is a table, or some some other metaphor? Yeah, it's a it's a table in the sense that a spreadsheet is a table. Airtable is trying to provide like a version of Google Sheets that does formula shit for you more simply. But some of the things that it can do, like pivot tables or whatever, I think are behind a paywall. 
So it makes it makes a lot of things that you tend to do with a spreadsheet just brainlessly easy, which is great. Uh, yeah. But also like you you gotta you gotta pay for the good shit. I guess the good shit is what like Gantt charts. I don't even know what that is. Every time I look at the good shit behind the paywall, I'm like, I don't. I have no idea. I I don't even know how to use this stuff. <laughs> I created an Airtable form where when I put my blood sugar into it, it would record my blood sugar and then spit out various averages to me, um, which was yeah. pretty cool. And I turned the form into like a tile on my iPhone's home screen. So it sort of functioned like an app for me. Um, huh, and I did nice. this for a while before I went back on a continuous glucose monitor. But uh, yeah, I used Airtable to calculate all sorts of shit about my blood sugar and uh, to record like what time of day it was, whether it was before meal or after meal. And then Airtable's various filtering effects made it really easy for me to like get an average of all my like pre-breakfast numbers, right? Uh, which was pretty cool. But uh, Google is not attempting to copy all of that functionality. It's just attempting to copy the, um, the, the features of Airtable, which make it possible to treat it like, like task tracking or Kanban type software. Were you able to, to get your blood sugar information into that table automatically or did you have to enter it manually? I had to use a form. Uh, so similar to Google Forms, Airtable has like a, a form feature um, that looks basically exactly the same and works basically exactly the same. Uh, but in Airtable, right. it's a lot easier to, for example, create a bunch of values that can go in a column. So I could create like breakfast, after breakfast, before lunch, like I could, I could create all those categories um, and more easily uh, filter them using Airtable's UI than I could if I was uh, asking somebody to write breakfast in a cell in a spreadsheet, right? Right. Yeah. I've also used Airtable to track my collection of enamel pins. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. What do, What are you uh, data mining out of that? I don't remember. I think I just bought some enamel pins around the same time that I got really into Airtable, and I love making spreadsheets. So I made a spreadsheet of all of them. <laughs> Well, you've got the right job then. Not anymore. I don't use spreadsheets oh, no. anymore, uh, but I do have the right. It's it's fine. What, what I'm saying is I don't use spreadsheets very often anymore at work, which is honestly good. It gives my brain a break. <laughs> you, it, from your spreadsheet hobby? Yeah. Spreadsheeting is now a hobby for me. Yeah. It's like scrapbooking, but completely different. Yeah. Is uh is Kanban like the UI, like the sort of, uh, I, I know that it's like a an analog concept that predates like digital implementations but is uh, is kanban like the, the the paradigm that trello is implementing i believe so it's the vertical column stuff okay yeah yeah so i've yeah so i've used that both in analog and digital forms before i i just i i yeah i had never connected all of those different things before cool are we ready for another topic sure sure uh, so my topic is driving around with a photo of yourself on your vehicle so april and i and Winston were eating breakfast outside of a cafe. And this dude drove up in a van and it's like, it's a realtor van. So it's like the usual, like, here's my profile and I'm kind of got my arms crossed and here's my phone number and name below that, like a decal plastered across the side of his brand van. Yeah. And then that same dude, that same fate with the same face then stepped out of the van <laughs> and which was hilarious. 
Uh, and then he talked to us about Winston and about how his wife really likes her new baby and wants another one and is complaining that now he has like a, a 30-year-old son and a, <laughs> a six-month-old son. And he was dragging you in deep to his life story there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I just am obsessed with the idea of like driving around with your face on your car, with your face and phone number on your car. Like, so that if someone doesn't like your driving, they can just give you a call right there. Right. It's, it's this form of accountability. There's, there's no safety net there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining somebody who's in like a, a dive bar in a remote town, you know, like off the highway, they get into a fight with members of like a biker gang. They think the fight is over, but then after they pay their tab, they go outside and the people are waiting next to their car. And they know that it was their car because it has his photograph and his phone number on it. How do you escape? You're screwed, buddy. Or maybe it has one of those decals on the back with like silhouettes of every family member. Yes. And they're labeled my wife, my son, my daughter, my dog. Yeah. And their social security numbers beneath that. Yeah. 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 Two, two, two thoughts on it, on this phenomenon. Uh, one, I could imagine like an, another planet or like a parallel timeline that somebody stumbles into ours from where everybody, where that's just the norm. Everybody's vehicle has their own face on it. And so they look at us and they're like, all of you people go around and you're just faceless. How do you know who each other is? Like, this is so, it's disturbing. It's like, you know, it, it, you know, it's like you're walking around at, at a creepy masquerade ball where everyone's face is covered. What, how, do you live, how do you people live like this? I definitely wish we lived in the world where, like, everybody had PictoChat on their DS. And so you could, like, Wi-Fi chat with the car next to you <laughs> while you were in traffic together. <laughs> like, yeah, this sucks, buddy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it would probably, I don't know, looking around in 2020 that it just seems I don't want I don't want that, <laughs> you know, from like, well, this is something that we were last episode, we were talking about how like, um, especially with the advent of the internet and how you can just have all your entire social life be online. I've put zero effort into cultivating like, neighbors that I like. Or like mm, maybe sure. there are people who live in this neighborhood that I would really enjoy hanging out with. I have no idea. And same deal with like, well, I, I would imagine that like if if car chat were a thing, there would be a way to tell like from a distance, oh, I bet that car looks like someone I'd want to hang out with. <laughs> you go uh, driving up to them and, and uh, send over your dick pic or whatever. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, you ruined it already. <laughs> I would never put my photo on my car under any circumstance. Yeah. I mean, I understand. It's terrifying. Yeah. Like, but yeah, the car as, as a proxy for the, for the self, like, this is something where I imagine people from from normal countries, i.e. countries that, that aren't just so built around cars that they've we've lost our minds completely just looking just listening to this conversation and being like man y'all y'all are really far down this car thing yeah well i'm sure they would have like lots of shit to talk about public transit yeah for sure yeah 
I uh, own a car, but I get a, before the pandemic, I mostly got around because I don't leave my house anymore. I mostly got around on a, a a tiny electric motorcycle, and I had a I had a great time with that because it, my commute was the exact same length thanks to LA traffic, and I didn't have to park at the end of my commute, so I actually saved time. And uh, having a small vehicle, which can come in a so like cars can't actually come in that many different shapes, right? They're pretty big. They're very expensive. A small number of companies make them. So you don't actually have that much options when it comes to your car unless you are like technically capable of like a huge customization effort. You know, if yeah, you want, unless you're super rich. Yeah. If you're, yeah. if you're very rich or you have a lot of free time, a yard and like mechanical equipment, you can't, you can't easily customize your car. But the number of different tiny electric vehicles that are like a single person rider vehicle is very, very large now. And since those uh, scooter sharing apps came out, more people are like aware of the idea that they could commute with a tiny electric vehicle. And in LA in particular, you used to see the weirdest ones that kind of looked handmade and strange. You know, I saw a couple gigantic electric skateboards that were like tiny surfboards, basically, that had like wacky wheels and like wacky shocks and you know, huge batteries underneath them and stuff. Uh, I would yeah. put my face on my tiny electric motorcycle. I would not put my face on a car. I take my tiny electric motorcycle into buildings with me when I reach my destination so people can't see it on the street. Uh, and I think it would be really, really funny for me to drive past somebody at 17 miles per hour, which is, you know, slow enough for them to track me with their eye pretty easily. And for them to see like numerous tiny pictures of my face all over my tiny electric motorcycle, that would be extremely <laughs> funny to me. Uh, but I would never put my face on a vehicle which I leave outside. Well, okay, so this is – are you wearing a helmet when you use this thing? Yes. Okay, so what if the helmet had a feature where like the the helmet was, you know, shaped like your head but was way bigger? Yeah. And just your face was projected onto that. Like you, if you were in big head mode. Yeah, if I was in big head mode. Absolutely. I would ride my tiny motorcycle in big head mode. <laughs> I would get a motorcycle so I could do that. I, I warn you, this tiny electric motorcycle only goes 17 miles per hour and you have to ride it in the bike lane, which is actually even better because then you're closer to your audience, which is on the sidewalk, right? That's right. Also, that sounds way safer. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds less terrifying than a full car. So. Is this thing technically a bike? Like, is it a bike with an engine on it? Yeah, it's technically a electric... It has. You can't pedal it. Oh, okay. It's not a moped. When I say tiny electric motorcycle, that's as good as I can get. It's a, uh, it's it's in s similar to a motorcycle. It has two powered, or it has one powered wheel, no pedal action involved, but it's entirely electric. Huh. And it doesn't go very fast. Unfortunately, it also doesn't have a lot of places where I could put my face on it, so I'd have to like attach metal to it or something, and then put my face on that. Right. I keep thinking of that that sight gag in the film hot fuzz where like the main character is confronting the kind of sinister oily, like supermarket owner guy. And there's this one shot where like it shows his, he's like cracking this, this, you know, this, this sort of wicked looking smile. And then his head passes out of frame, revealing a photo that just looks where he's, it's from the, it's taken from the same angle and he's, and he's, cracking the exact same ex smile and expression. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like this, it, the genius of it is that it, it, it comes and goes so quickly that 
you just react to the pure visual of it. But yeah, like I, that's sort of, I, I imagine cars with people's faces on them just being a wellspring of that, you know, people just con you're just constantly getting that gag from somebody walking out of their car, you know, stepping out of their car right. and whatever. And, and at some point it would just stop being funny. Like when it happened in the parking lot in front of me, it was hilarious. Cause I, this is the only time in my life that's ever, I've ever seen that except in movies. Uh, but yeah, like I see what you're saying. And yeah, that once, and yeah, the other thought I had on this was, uh, there's that one Neil Cesariga album that's like a photograph of a trailer, like a like a a thing carried behind a truck. Maybe I don't know. Is this a Lemon Demon album? It's yeah. I, I I'm pretty sure this is where I saw this image, and it probably predates that. Anyway, it's Eddie Murphy's giant head. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like this photo and it's driving down the highway. And I think a car is behind the photograph is being taken from a car that is driving behind this giant Eddie Murphy head. I've certainly seen that head around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm pretty sure that Neil Cicerega used it for some album for, for an album cover for, from a while back. Anyway, just imagining Eddie Murphy actually piloting that if, if, if that is indeed a vehicle, <laughs> Piloting yeah. that. I mean, it's sort of going one further than having your, your image and just having like a full 3D sculpture. Right. But he's also got a shirt with his face on it. Right. Just, yeah. He's just blasting you with, yeah, his identity. That's a, okay. That's an alternate possibility. Like what about like a t-shirt with your face and phone number on it? I would wear a t-shirt with my face on it, but not my phone number. That sounds smart. Yeah. yeah that's, yeah. That's pretty basic. OPSEC. I would wear my username across the shoulders, though, like a football player. Your Twitter name? <laughs> well, like any username. Depends on the context I'm wearing the shirt, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm going to like a, a fan convention, maybe I'm putting my 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 yeah, game. Handle. Yeah, my handle for whatever that is that I'm there for across the shoulders, yeah. but not my phone number. Putting ARG clues on my business card was almost a big tactical error because when they people started trying to figure out, you know, the, the solve the the frog fractions arg, they were like, should I should I post this picture of this business card with Jim's personal information on it? <laughs> right, your phone number and whatever. Right, right. Um, and what I ended up like, as it happened, they already had all the important information from it. So I told them that and they were like, okay, I'll I'll keep this to myself. Uh, but that was like a, when, when, when it's just a person running an ARG, like it's real possible to get your entire life tangled up in it in a way that is not always conducive to, to safety. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bet. Or when uh, your face represents your realtor company. I'm sure realtors, their entire life is tangled up in that shit. Yeah, no doubt. Ugh, yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. This is a write-in. Stephen asks, a fictional world, the discovery of which prompted global obsession and study, which gradually allowed Talon, however you pronounce that, to bleed into and eventually replace the real world, kind of like the internet. Uh, and I have to say, the reason that I put this write-in into, into the list was that we were trying to figure out what write-in to include. And this one immediately turned into a fascinating conversation about gas manufacturing gaskets. So that's what we're going to talk about. 
Does first before we do that, does anything anybody have anything to say about the actual prompt? I don't. I learned that this is from a a Borges story, which I don't know about. So this question makes me feel like a fool and inadequate, and I resent it. But that's okay. <laughs> uh, uh, it reminds me of um, uh, the series of short stories, the anti anti mimetics division, where. The the big bad is a riff on that sort of idea where uh, there is an entity coming into our universe that has been that evolved in a environment where where memes were much more competitive than in ours, and so the, if if you are infected with this meme, it kind of takes over your entire life. Uh, I, I actually really like that series of short stories. I think it's incredible, and it was just recently like collected into a. a a book which you can buy, but you can also just read it on the SCP Foundation. It's called uh, the Anti Memetics Division series. So, I want to talk about gaskets? Let's talk about gaskets. So, the <laughs> way we got to this was I Googled TLON. TLON is a, um, a manufacturer of, it looks like piston seals. It looks like that's what they make. <laughs> So, and then we got, we got to talking about, uh, oh yes, they've got, they just won a patent on the TLI four series, four piece inch piston seal. Congrats. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. They're really making their way in the world. And then we started talking about gaskets. Right. I got to look at the, I got to look at the chat. And then I said that this is true. I have a friend who worked at a gasket factory and uh, they didn't work in the actual factory part of the gasket factory, but they had to learn how to make gaskets in the factory part of the gasket factory because it was mandatory for everyone in the company to like actually know about gasket making, which I was I was so impressed by because I've I've had a long a long running contempt for people who are in uh, sales or management positions uh, who don't actually know about the thing they're selling or managing, you know? Right. Um, the people who do the best at these jobs know about the thing they're dealing with, but there's a surprisingly large number of people in every industry who like d deliberately don't learn anything about the thing they're dealing with. And you see this sometimes in video games where it's infuriating. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had for years, I, for years I had a job where essentially I was the one playing the games for people who didn't have time to play games. You know, on one, on one hand, it makes a lot of sense, you know, to portion out work that way. If you've got some people who need to travel all the time, they can't play things on their PlayStation, you know, but it's it always infuriated me that there were people I had to deal with who tried to maintain a distance from the thing that they should know about, you know? Yeah. And so, I, I really admired this gasket company for making my friend learn about gaskets because that seems, you know, first of all, I would love to learn about making gaskets. It's probably pretty cool. Uh, huge machines cutting circles out of rubber. That sounds pretty neat. Uh, how do they cut the circles? Probably with a big knife or a laser. I would love to see a big knife. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. That all sounded fantastic to me. And then also the the idea of ha having multidisciplinary knowledge in your job always sounded cool to me too. You know? Yeah. I feel that way about video games a lot of time. I have to know about a lot of different things to make video games, and I think I would be equally pleased by a job where I had to know about both spreadsheets and giant rubber knives. You know? Uh, seems neat. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah, I do kind of like the idea that that ideally everybody in the company would have worked every job in the company. Yeah, you just you have it's like a chore wheel where you you where you rotate out and yeah, because it kind of like suggests that a lot of the power dynamics associated with different kinds of labor have equalized somewhat. 
where it's yep. like, oh, this person who this person today, this week, this person is doing this fairly highly valued form of labor. And but then next week they're going to rotate off of it and do something kind of unglamorous. And that's fine because everybody, you know, I mean, I think it would it would basically equalize the cultural respect afforded to different kinds of labor. So that that seems especially appealing because it's sort of yeah. a prototype for like how society at large could work, maybe. And maybe we would treat a lot of professions better if we did think of it more like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It also uh, could create a much more resilient organization, you know? Totally. If people yeah. share more knowledge across disciplines or across uh, shifts or departments or whatever, you end up with a, a much larger bus number or whatever they call it. Bus factor, bus yeah. Bus factor, yeah. <laughs> And having having been the number one bus person on a lot of things recently, it's exhausting to be the sole <laughs> carrier of knowledge. You're just dodging buses all the time. Yeah. But like I've been in a lot of situations where I wish that more people knew the things that I knew to do my job so that they could solve problems without me or so that uh, they could have empathy for my for the challenges I was experiencing, you know. So, yeah, I agree. I would love to work at a place where everybody had to cycle around and learn each other's stuff. Yeah. Totally agree. The slightly more practical version of that that I would also be enthusiastic about is like learning how to do everything at like a novice sort of, you know, like, you know, kind of being like a level kind of being level one to level five or something in every discipline that sure. people do at yeah. the company, which I mean, you know, like I kind of try to do that, you know, like everybody in game development, I, I think probably I have the least insight into like you know biz what biz people do but like you know programming art design audio you know production you know i mean yeah like i i inherently care about those things and i'm in, i find them inherently interesting and valuable so like and i i kind of want to spend as much of my career as i can working with people who feel the same way you know because yeah yeah <laughs> yeah there's a um a short story called the egg which posits a cosmology where uh, every human who's ever lived is is the life of a, of a single person or a single, I don't know if you'd call them a person, but a single like entity. Oh yeah. I remember reading this. Yeah. And, and, and everybody, and everybody is like just reincarnating through. Yeah. Yeah. And like the idea is that like after this, whatever this thing is lives all these lives then they go on to do like, then they graduate into whatever their next thing is. Right. And it's uh, I don't know. I, I think it's um, a pretty good, like a, like a good way to think about the world, you know, in just in terms of having empathy for the people around you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of treating the entirety of humanity as a single organism. Yeah. And not in like the terrible, like sacrificing one, you know, sacrificing a bunch of people for some other, for some arbitrary goal. But in like the, I mean, I don't know, the way that, the, the way that my political consciousness interprets that story is like, we are judged by like how well we treat the most vulnerable and disadvantaged, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that, yeah, if, if yeah, like you could probably apply very different principles to that. And just say, well, some 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 of these incarnations of the single organism of humanity just need to take one for the team. But that's kind of a clear, are we the baddies situation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have one last thing to say about gaskets. Some gaskets are only good for a short amount of time, and then they go bad. 
which means that they need to be shipped immediately and used immediately, or they'll just go bad somehow. Are they made of rubber? Yes, and sometimes the rubber needs to be kept at like a certain temperature, or after a couple days, it like degrades or something. So anyway, this this finally ex- explained for me why we always hear about like seals failing or or like gaskets failing, you know, and, and causing terrible disasters. Uh, a, a bad gasket might be a gasket that sat on the front porch for a couple hours too long, you know, and it it, yeah. it, it imperceptibly or maybe percept I don't know probably perceptibly if you're a gasket expert went bad. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, rubber is like you, you think of. You, I remember hearing about how like it, how long it takes plastic to biodegrade, but rubber is made of like tree sap, right? I don't know if. It all still is not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, I don't. I guess I don't know either. It's like a yeah. I mean, it, it it's it's some sort of. I, I don't know if it's technically sap or what, but it, it it is definitely a plant product. Yeah. And so it is. It is a carbon based product, and it has like you know, it certainly has a carbon you know a, a plant product like perishability. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's it, it it's intuitive to me that this stuff would rot. Yeah. Oh yes, here's here's a good snippet from the chat. A piston seal is a cybernetically enhanced warrior animal. It's a little grim dark, but yeah, that's what came to mind. Does it have like walrus tusks, but they're pistons, and it could launch itself? It could put its head down on the ground, and then it could shoot itself into the air using its pistons. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's a that's a Pokemon right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Or Team Fortress Two character. Yep. I guess it would be Overwatch these days. Are you ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Uh, Laura, your topic is safety-proofing your house to keep Pokemon in it if Pokemon were real. Yeah, what would this entail? And would you do it? Or would you just give up on having a Pokemon? I think people don't consider, you know, the, the fantasy of having a little animal who's on fire. That means that there's an open flame in your residence all the time, right? Yeah. Or the fantasy <laughs> of having a little animal who can control plants. You know, and they, uh-huh. can, they can drop, yeah. a, let's say, a leech seed on you. You know, like, it's an animal. It's not smart. It's it's quite stupid, probably. And it's also probably, like, you know, viewing the world as a world of threats and dangers. It's probably dropping plants all over your house. And now you've got now you've got a messed up house. You know, like, what would it what would it take? Like, even even having a dog and a cat in the house sometimes has issues like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you got to pet-proof a house. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, they don't understand a lot of things that we do. So, like, I wouldn't give any dog I've ever met elemental magic powers. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, that, that, that'd turn out real bad. Yeah, well, if you did, you'd keep it outdoors. I mean, even then, it's still potentially, you know, just the, the, the danger of it is immense. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pokemon are so powerful. It's scary to think about how powerful even very basic Pokemon would be. And they have this idea in Pokemon media that like Pokemon are never bad. Their trainers are bad. You know, if a Pokemon is like smart enough to choose when to use its powers and shit, it could become bad. Right. Like, let's say you have, it could become a problem. Yeah. yeah. And uh, let's, let's say that you have like a problem Charmander, you know, anytime it goes under your couch, setting your couch on fire, probably. But then even if you keep it outside, what if it just wants to jump the fence all the time? And then it could set other people's houses on fire. Are you legally liable for that? It could start a forest fire. Right. Doesn't seem safe. And it doesn't even need to be bad. You know, like there's no malintent there. It just, if it doesn't understand what it's doing, 
and the limits of its powers, then, yeah. you know, yeah, it's just... I personally, I would, I would Pokemon prove my house only for, like, normal type Pokemon, Pokemon who do not have any elemental abilities. So I'm talking, like, maybe a Rattata, right? Uh, but again, I wouldn't keep it inside my house. I'd probably... Is, is a Rattata just... Is it just a rat? It has really powerful jaws. It can use okay. Hyper Fang, which could probably kill you. I can say from experience, rats have pretty powerful jaws. Imagine a rat with <laughs> even more powerful jaws and also like the ability to learn and follow commands. Yeah. And okay. also it's like bigger than a loaf of bread, probably. <laughs> rat loaf. Yeah. So if I had an animal like that, I would only agree to keep it if I also owned like property and a barn to keep it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could imagine. I could imagine an, an ethical Snorlax pasture, you know, <laughs> yeah. where they're, you know, they're 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 comfortable and happy. They can do their thing. They just sleep all the time. And yeah, right. I mean, that's the that's the dream. Yeah, I could imagine them being very relaxing to be around. There are some Pokemon which are similar to farm animals, but a lot of them can also learn moves like roll out or like headbutt or whatever, which is probably enough to kill a human. Terrifying. So if you had one, if you had a Pokemon that had solar beam and you trained it to repeatedly fire solar beam at your solar panels, how much money do you think PG&E would pay you? That's where we're getting into like Pokemon exploitation. That's maybe even a more important reason that Pokemon shouldn't be real because capitalism would exploit the hell out of them in incredibly grim ways that make like mass agriculture seem like a freaking petting zoo. Enslaving this one Pokemon would stop all climate change. We would just solve the problem of, of clean energy. It is is that is that creature like is it is it just literally infinite energy? I I presume well it certainly seems to be in Pokemon Go. Like I don't I don't pay a cost for that. That's a ones who walk away from Omalus situation where <laughs> it is very much like, so. yeah if the world's energy needs could be met by enslaving and making miserable just a single creature i'm going to send you folks a video it's nine and a half minutes of pikachu's walking in circle on a little like treadmill shouting pika pika pichu which you've probably seen it before but this is people exploiting pokemon for energy in the world of pokemon and this, this they, they didn't think of the solar beam thing yeah like i don't know jp i'm interested in your thoughts on this one for me, it has the vibe of, you know, those food advertisements where there's like a smiling animal saying like, eat me, you know, where the, yeah. the cuteness oh, of yeah, the animal totally. is sort of like being weaponized against it to ensure its own subjugation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's grim. I mean, it, it's just a, it's an unambiguously factory like situation. Yeah. I mean, it seems like exploitation. I don't know. I mean, we don't I, like, I, I, I don't know very much about Pokemon at all, but like, you know, it's like, what's the, what's the consciousness of a Pikachu? How aware are they of the situation? What, I mean, if we can't communicate with them verbally, then it's kind of like with real life animals. We don't, we can't know what their universe is like. And comments are turned off in this video. They're trying to silence this debate. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, people, it would just be nothing, but it would be wall to wall people saying this is messed up. Or this is messed up, but I would definitely do it. <laughs> right. Like if this if this satisfied the energy needs of the entire planet and we yeah. could just transition off of fossil fuels tomorrow with this. I guess can a society 
be safe if it gains its energy through subjugation, right? Like probably no. Because right. once you say, all right, it's okay to make these nine Pikachu run in a circle, then your your Overton window for what it's okay to do will immediately begin sliding towards what other things is it okay to make run in a circle or to do whatever, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then you just end yeah. up in regular Pokemon world, which is like a hellscape, you know? It's a, it's a blood sports hellscape as, as we've all all joked before in the past, but you know, it's true. So, in, in Pokemon world, they just keep the Pokemon in little balls. Hmm. Which I think they invented because otherwise they'd have Charmanders running around setting everything on fire. Pokemon can also become data and they can be inside a computer. <laughs> really? Yeah. I wonder if that works for people too. I think it does. I'm pretty sure in at least one of the Pokemon games, I mean, one of the, yeah, one of the games they revealed that like humans were technically like also Pokemon in some way or something. Oh, I like that a lot. That humans are just another Pokemon species that just became the... The one that enslaved all the others. Human, human. Yeah. You know, yeah, they just, that's their vocalization. And then one day they started saying other words and ev just everything got out of hand. Right. I think uh, the reason why Pokemon as like a media entity or whatever is like so focused on controlling and I keep saying it, subjugating these little animals is because children don't really have like an understanding of pets that's like more sophisticated than that. You know, yeah. Children see a pet as like an animal that belongs to them that they like take on walks or something. They don't know about like factory farming. Uh, yeah. Very few children spend enough time in in nature to like you know develop an opinion about nature that's different from like societies, which is mostly that like nature is there to serve humans. You know, I don't know if it would be easy. To tell a story to children about magical animals that, like, are in a partnership with them without it also trending into, like, pet territory, which is inherently about, like, controlling the animal. I don't know. Uh, I do know that Rare is making a game about, like, people with big magical animals, and I want to play that. Uh, ho <laughs> hoping that that one is, is, is less of a did-you-know-that-this-is-all-blood-sports kind of experience, but... Yeah, like, that's... it. It's not, it I always feel silly, like, you know putting forward like the ethics of this f clearly whimsical child targeted fictional universe as like a reason that I can't get super into this, but like it's definitely non-zero on, on my mind, you know? And yeah, like, and, and it, and it, it, it sort of is like a creative push to, to like think about like, Oh, well, yeah, if I was going to make a world, a story and a, a game, whatever about, cool magical creatures that humans interact with, what would it be? And yeah, the answer I always came up with is like, well, yeah, you would like journey through the world and like you kind of like, like animals choose to associate with you. And if you're a jerk, then, then no animal is going to want to associate with you. But if you're nice to them and you kind of like learn how to live in harmony with like what they're doing and what they want and, you know, so it's more of like an equitable, you, you basically go around the world having different, interesting, equitable relationships with these cool, myth, you know, magical creatures that do all kinds of stuff. And you don't carry them around in balls because yeah. that's like, that's always been like the most messed up thing for just like imagining what it's like inside of a Pokeball. It's just, ugh, it's, it, it's just terrible to think about. Anyway, none of that. Uh digitizing their souls i don't know i mean that just seems like it was a game design expediency that yeah. turned into like an important world detail 
Right. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, if, if all consciousness can be digitized, then that probably means that the entire Pokemon universe is an example where that the universe is a hologram. That takes place in a Game Boy. Is actually, you know, the correct hypothesis about reality. But yeah, who knows? I, I don't know if the Pokemon lore goes that deep into questions of deep cosmology, but... JP, have you ever seen the anime Mushishi? No, I don't think so. It takes place in like, I guess, late 1800s, early 1900s-esque Japan. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a different century. Uh, this guy wanders around and he's sort of like a healer that deals with like bug-like spirits called Mushi that uh, infect people's bodies if they mess with nature or if they uh, have, have problems or whatever. It's an interesting take on the mystical animals. Uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. The mystical animals aesthetic. I don't know. I liked it because it was the first anime I saw that was about adults uh, rather than high schoolers. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> um, it definitely is like a very, like, oh, a lot of these little ghosts are pests to us. We have to deal with them so they don't make us sick. But there's also sort of like a a, a lot of themes about people uh, treating nature well or treating each other well, you know. Um, I think you might like it. That's rad. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Uh, JP, your topic is you can send one print of a single film of your choosing back to 1960. What film do you choose and why? Yeah, so this came out of like, God, it was so long ago now. This must have been like back at back in college or something, I think maybe. And it might have been... I could just be totally inventing this context now because it's been so long, but it might have been my friends and I, my art school friends and I watching like Terminator 2, which would have been a relatively new, I mean, I don't know, this would have been like the late 90s when we were watching this and Terminator 2 came out in what, like 91, 92? Yeah. And thinking like, what if you sent this film, Terminator 2, back to like 1955 or whatever? Like... People would just have no concept over and above just like that it's depicting a present day society of 1990, whatever, that is going to be pretty alien and weird to them. Just like when you show them like special effects that, you know, at the time to us looked like indistinguishable from reality, even though you can kind of look at like a lot of the special effects in that movie now and be like, well, you know, they would do this differently now and whatever. But just like the idea of computer graphics and... Hollywood special effects and massive set pieces and stunts and all of that, like it would probably just like break people's brains, you know, to, to watch, to have them watch a movie. Like they would have just enough of a concept to know what they were seeing, but it would just be, I just imagine it being upsetting, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I don't know that, 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 that question kind of like the question just kind of stuck with me and has popped back up in various contexts over the years. I feel like even just the quality of the the film, like the v literal visual quality of just like shots of people sitting there and talking, I think would be um, yeah, it would be kind of nightmarish. Too real, you think? Uh, to, right to, to somebody who's used to film stock looking a certain way and being kind of blurry, possibly only being black and you know mostly being black and white, to suddenly yeah. have like these super crisp, like digitally mastered images that are printed onto you know and I, that. I thought film because it's like, well, that is a technology that you could send back in time and it would basically work if you had the right projector or whatever. Right. What's the goal? 
Well, that's, I mean, yeah, like the question is partly like, what kind of goal would you have? Because, yeah, I mean, you could just pick something at random and be like, I'm going to send Ferris Bueller's Day Off back to 1960. And whoa, that would blow people's mind. It wouldn't really like teach them any grand lessons about society or anything. But you could also take the tack of like, I am looking to alter the timeline. I want to achieve these social objectives. I want to avert the Kennedy assassination. Oh, yeah. Send the Zepruder film back. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could show people that and be like, wait a minute. That looks like that one place in Dallas. Uh, John Kennedy, JFK has just been elected president. You know, just whatever. I mean, yeah, like he, the, the different goals are kind of like more interesting to me than just like, you know, freaking out people with media from the future, which, you know, is admittedly fun to think about in some cases. If you sent like a... If you sent a movie about astronauts back in time, you'd probably be fi- have a lot more people who were convinced that the moon landings were faked. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, right. Even 2001, if you sent 2001, which I believe came out in 1968, back to 1960, they would be like, I mean, that would really feed that, that, that sort of silly conspiracy theory that Stanley Kubrick helped fake the moon landing because yeah. his eye for detail helped them like kind of concoct the most convincing illusion possible. Yeah. I think sending a video back without context on how it was created could definitely fuck with people in a bad way. And I guess the challenge would be finding a movie that helps to create some kind of epiphany in society without also seeming fake or untrustworthy or not important because it's too fantastical, right? Yeah, just just the movie itself without any context for like – you could send like a documentary about climate change back, but it would seem like nonsense with no, with none of the context of the last 50 years. Yeah. If you were making a film to send back to them, then, you know, it would basically be like kind of, it would be like the, the sports almanac that in back to the future too, you know, that is like carefully crafted to like, you know, load people up with the information that they need to do an optimal run of the next half century or whatever. Right. But, but yeah, if you just had to stick with existing films, then yeah, there's that sort of like incompleteness of context that does make it really tricky to think about. I like the idea of sending the sports almanac back to everybody. So everybody wins every bet on sporting (laughs) events. Well, and right. If an athlete reads about to play a baseball game reads, you know, a record of his what his performance is about to be over the next couple of hours, that must change the past, right? That that must change history, right? I think there's a higher chance that a, a person bets on something, makes a shit ton of bucks, and this changes their family's life in such a way that their child no longer becomes an athlete, right? Sure, right. Yeah. Somebody who would have gotten a sports scholarship instead gets a full paid for education from their parents and chooses to be something else instead, you know? So the moment people start betting and winning based on their secret almanac, they change history and they might change the outcome of future games. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So it's probably only good for like a year. So in the back to the future world, probably the almanac would update, like it would do the ghostly crossfade into different information as history was changing. (laughs) Yeah. There's that there's that whole, you know, like meta discussion of like what thing what are the basic rules of time travel? You know, is there only one timeline that updates weirdly and makes your hand disappear while you're trying to play the guitar? 
Is everybody locked into a single timeline, et cetera, et cetera? Sorry, I was just thinking about how the maker, the filmmakers decided that it was important that we send a white person back in time so that a white person could invent rock and roll. Oh, yeah. Right. If we sent Back to the Future back, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of baggagey messed up things that we could be, I don't know, potentially making right or potentially making worse. It seems like a very fraught decision. If you send anything back in time, choosing to send something back in time that doesn't improve the world is like probably a big ethical mistake, right? Because, you know, if we're, we're gaining the technology to send things back in time, that's probably like a rare opportunity, right? Yeah, probably blowing a good, uh, yeah. So, I guess et- ethically, we kind of have to send something back that we think will cause, that, that will like alleviate harm that we know to have happened without causing harm that we don't yet know about. Makes it a very difficult choice. Yeah. I think we got to stick with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Seems benign. Right. Inoffensive. Yeah. I guess it it tells people that uh, sampler-based Casios that you can record belching and farting noises into will will come into existence. So that might kind of fast-track that and maybe a couple of random Pink Floyd albums sound different. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty minimal impact, all told. I don't know. Uh, That's all the time we have for Topic Lords today. JP, uh, how does this go? (laughs) Where can people find me on the internet? Yes, that's it. Uh, Yeah. My website is vectorpoem.com. And yeah, some of the stuff that I do is on there. And Laura, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, my website is lauramichet, L-A-U-R-A-M-I-C-H-E-T.com. And I'm also on Twitter at lmichet. That's where you can find me. All right. It's a great chat, guys. Thanks so much for being on Topic Lords. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service